Our scripture reading today is Mark chapter 9, verses 1 through 13, continuing our series, sermon series on the gospel of Mark. And he said to them, Truly I say to you, there are some standing here who will not taste death until they see the kingdom of God after it has come with power. And after six days, Jesus took with him Peter and James and John and led them up a high mountain by themselves. And he was transfigured before them, and his clothes became radiant, intensely white, as no one on earth could bleach them. And there appeared before, there appeared to them Elijah with Moses, and they were talking with Jesus. And Peter said to Jesus, Rabbi, it is good that we are here. Let us make three tents. One for you, and one for Moses, and one for Elijah. For he did not know what to say, for they were terrified. And a cloud overshadowed them, and a voice came out of the cloud, This is my beloved son. Listen to him. And suddenly, looking around, they no longer saw anyone with them but Jesus only. And as they were coming down the mountain, he charged them to tell no one what they had seen until the Son of Man had risen from the dead. So they kept the matter to themselves, questioning what this rising from the dead might mean. And they asked him, why do the scribes say that first Elijah must come? And he said to them, Elijah does come first to restore all things. And how it is written of the Son of Man that he should suffer many things and be treated with contempt. But I tell you that Elijah has come and they did to him whatever they pleased as it is written of him. Father, we're thankful for your word and for your truth. We thank you that we can see Jesus as a result of the inerrant word that you have given to us. We pray that your Holy Spirit would give us eyes to see and ears to hear uh, for our good and your glory. In Jesus' name, amen. It says here in verse 2 that after six days, Jesus took with him Peter and James and John and led them up a high mountain. And this after six days is probably in reference to six days after Peter's confession. Peter confessed, you are the Christ. And he got it right on that one, even if he didn't know fully what that meant. But then on the heels of that, uh, Jesus said, I'm going to suffer at the hands of the religious leaders and I'm going to be killed. And then after that, uh, I'll be raised from the dead. And Peter rebukes Jesus. Uh, to which Jesus says, get behind me, Satan, in response. So not so, not so good on that one, Peter. And then Jesus begins to uh, clarify what it means uh, to, for, to, for Jesus himself to undergo this suffering, but also for his disciples who are following him. He says to them that he will be crucified. He will be, they must take up their cross and follow Jesus. So this was, again, a sign of the Roman form of execution of the day, and that his disciples were going to follow him uh, to that execution, and, and a, number of, a number of them would be executed themselves, but they would undergo suffering as well for the sake of the gospel, Jesus said, the good news that Jesus came to proclaim, that Jesus came to embody. And so uh, Jesus encourages them uh, in chapter 9, verse 1, and this is all review of what Heath preached on last week. Truly I say to you, there are some standing here who will not taste death until they see the kingdom of God after it has come with power. Now, 
what uh, Heath said was, when was this coming in power that Jesus spoke of? There, in a very real sense, that came at the resurrection. When Jesus was resurrected from the dead, we saw the kingdom come with power. And yet what we see here in, in the Gospel of Mark and the other synop- synoptic Gospels, that would be Matthew, Mark, Luke, uh, is that just after Jesus states this about seeing the kingdom come in power, we find this transfiguration. And what this is is a foretaste of the kingdom coming in power that, that Peter, James, and John are privileged to witness. And Jesus brings them to this mountain for the purpose of encouraging them and revealing more of who he is. This whole, uh, this whole time when we've been talking about the Gospel of Mark, who is Jesus? Well, they get an, a, a big glimpse into the reality of who Jesus is. Something that was in some ways hidden, that they hadn't seen, that they didn't know, uh, is revealed to them in dramatic fashion. The, the movie Shang-Chi, Legend of the Ten Rings, there's a, there's a scene in that movie. You've got, uh, you've got Sean uh, and his friend Katie, who are mild-mannered uh, valet drivers. And uh, they're on a bus, and uh, these, uh, these big nasty dudes come up in the bus, and they say, we want your uh, pendant around your neck. And they're threatening, and uh, Katie says, look, uh, can't you see? He can't defend himself. You know, they're, they're threatening harm. And uh, they push her down uh, roughly. Well, Sean kicks into gear, and he does these martial art moves that are otherworldly, right? It's more than your average martial arts. And so after dispatching them, Katie looks over at him and says, who are you? She's known him for 10 years. This mild-mannered valet uh, Parker is, uh, is somebody that she had no idea that he had this about him. Well, the disciples are in a little better position. I mean, at his baptism, God the Father said, this is my son. So an audible voice. And then you had these dramatic healings that Jesus did. And he walked on the water and he fed 5,000. So they had an indication that Jesus uh, was something very, very special. But here in the trans, uh, transfiguration, uh, even more is revealed about who he is. And so it says here that after six days, Jesus took with them Peter and James and John and led them up a high mountain by themselves. And he was transfigured before them and his clothes became radiant, intensely white as no one on earth could bleach them. And the different gospel writers that relate this transfiguration, they all use different words, basically trying to capture what this looked like. Uh, He had dazzling white clothes. Some of them talk about his face was radiant and white. And what this tells us in no uncertain terms is that Jesus is not merely earthly, that the Christ is also heavenly. Listen to the description of this heavenly vision that Daniel had, recorded in Daniel chapter 7, verse 9. He said, As I looked, thrones were placed, and the Ancient of Days took his seat, and his clothing was white as snow, and the hair of his head like pure wool. His throne was fiery flames, and its wheels were burning fire. And by the way, that almost that exact uh, description is of Jesus in Revelation chapter 1. In Matthew chapter 28, 3, at the resurrection, we have this description of the angel from heaven. His appearance was like lightning and his clothes were white 
as snow. And so in no uncertain terms, the glory of Jesus Christ is revealed to the disciples is not simply human, but heavenly. And then you have this other occurrence that doesn't happen every day. Elijah and Moses show up, and they're there on this mountain, um, and uh, they, they speak to Jesus. Uh, it says in verse 4, and they appeared to them, Elijah and Moses, and they were talking with Jesus. Now, it's often been said of this that Moses represents the, the giver of the law, and Elijah represents the prophets. So you have the law and the prophets confirming the person of Jesus Christ. And that's true. Uh, But you also need to understand that Moses was a prophet in his own right. In fact, what we uh, hear of Moses, uh, Deuteronomy 18, 15, he says this of himself, the Lord your God will raise up a prophet like me from among you, your brothers. It is him you shall listen to. Now, if you go, we'll we'll, uh, fast forward just a little bit. Uh, at the verse 7, where God speaks, this is my beloved son, listen to him. Okay, so this statement, listen to him, is purposely keying in off the fact that Moses said, there's going to come one like me, a prophet, listen to him. And so the disciples would understand, and we would understand reading this, that this is a reference to the fact that this is a prophet like Moses. Moses was a prophet. Uh, Elijah was a prophet. In fact, they met with God in dramatic fashion where? On mountains. And here we have this mountaintop experience with Jesus and his disciples. And then you have Peter speaking out of his terror in verse 6. For He says, uh, Rabbi, this is verse 5 rather, Rabbi, it is good that we are here. Let us make three tents, one for you, one for Moses, one for Elijah. For he did not know what to say, for they were terrified. Now, I don't know what you're like when you're really scared. You know, do you clam up? Uh, Peter was a talker. So Peter just talks immediately upon being terrified. And uh, people have wondered, uh, what is this, uh, what's going on here with these, uh, let's build, let's make these tents uh, for, uh, for Elijah and for Moses and for Jesus. You know, what's going on with the tents? And one possibility is these tents are um, uh, something that were used in the Feast of Tabernacles. The Feast of Tabernacles was a Jewish feast day, one of three feast days that all males were required uh, to travel to Jerusalem. And what happened in the uh, Feast of the Tabernacles, you know, we think of going camping, right? You know, you pitch your tent and go camping. Uh, Well, I suppose that's what they were doing, but... The reason why they were doing it was because they were commemorating the 40 years of wilderness wanderings. And so they would commemorate it by setting up tents, uh, tabernacles, and they would live in them temporarily during this feast day. So maybe something like that was going on. But one thing is clear that Peter was um, putting Jesus in the same category with Elijah and Moses, right? Which, that's pretty good company. But Jesus is in a whole different category. Jesus is greater than Moses, far greater than Moses. He's far greater than the greatest prophet. He is far greater than Elijah. 
And so um, after Peter says this, then we hear the voice of God, the Father from heaven, making it very clear that that is not the case. He's not simply a great prophet. He's not simply heavenly. Angels are heavenly, but Jesus is not simply heavenly. Jesus is God. He's revealed as God in a special way here. This is my beloved son. Listen to him. You have this cloud first overshadowing them and enveloping them, uh, signifying the presence of God. You had this in the Old Testament in the wilderness wanderings and on Mount Sinai. The only other place where you see the cloud coming with God's presence with speaking is at Mount Sinai with the giving of the law. And here we have the embodiment of the gospel, the cloud, God, the Father, speaking of the Son, speaking of the one who was the embodiment of this gospel, this good news uh, that was now present and among them. And so Jesus himself is revealed as God incarnate, heavenly son, eternal son of God from all eternity, from before creation. We hear of this in the book of Hebrews chapter 1, beginning at the very first verse. Long ago and at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, he, was, he has spoken to us by his son, whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom also he created the world. He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature, and he upholds the universe by the word of his power. And after making purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high, having become as much superior to the angels as the name he has inherited is more excellent than theirs. He is, he is the Son of God, God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit, one God, three persons, speak of the Trinity. And so the Son existed from all eternity, an eternal relationship with the Father, Father and Son relationship from all eternity. But then we also find that he is the eternal Christ going forward for all eternity. He is the Christ. Remember we talked about Peter didn't exactly understand what it meant to be the Christ. He got some of it. Well, he is the Christ, the Son. There's a prophecy uh, that God gave to David, King David, in 1 Chronicles 17, 13, and 14. And this prophecy was of a descendant of David, and it said this, I will be to him a father, and he shall be to me a son. I will not take my steadfast love from him as I took it from him who was before you. But I will confirm him in my house and in my kingdom forever, and his throne shall be established forever. Because Jesus exists forever His kingdom is established forever. In Acts chapter 2, verse 29, Peter, again himself, says this, Brothers, I may say to you with confidence about the patriarch David that he both died and was buried and his tomb is with us to this day. Being therefore a prophet and knowing that God had sworn with an oath to him that he would set one of his descendants on his throne... He foresaw and spoke about the resurrection of the Christ, that he was not abandoned to Hades, nor did his flesh see corruption. This Jesus God raised up, 
and of that we are all witnesses, being therefore exalted at the right hand of God and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, he has poured out this that you yourselves are seeing and hearing. For David did not ascend into the heavens, but he himself says, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. Let all the house of Israel therefore know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, Christ the King, the anointed one, this Jesus whom you have crucified. He is King. He is Christ. He is Lord. And that means some wonderful things. And so Peter and James and John are beginning to see more of the reality of who this Christ is. In the Old Testament, it says of the Christ, in verse chapter, seven, chapter 9, verse 7 of Isaiah, of the increase of his government and of peace, there will be no end. On the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time and forevermore, the zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. And just one glimpse of what that kingdom will look like, how it will transform into a new heavens and a new earth. We have the famous passage in Isaiah 11, 6 through 9. The wolf shall dwell with the lamb and the leopard shall lie down with the young goat and the calf and the lion and the fatted calf together. And a little child shall lead them. The cow and the bear shall graze. Their young shall lie down together and the lion shall eat straw like the ox. The nursing child shall play over the hole of the cobra, and the weaned child shall put his hand on the adder's den, and they shall not hurt or destroy in all my holy mountain, for the earth shall be full of the knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover over the sea. In many places in Scripture we see examples and glimpses of what this new heavens and new earth, what this kingdom will be like. So the kingdom came in power at the resurrection, but the consummation of the kingdom is going to come when Jesus Christ returns. And that's when we will see the full extent of its power. Peter himself said of this event in 2 Peter chapter 1, verses 16 through 18, this event on the Mount of the Mount of Transfiguration. For we did not follow cleverly devised myths when we made known to you the power and the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, but we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. For when he received honor and glory from, the God, from God the Father, and the voice was borne to him by the, by the majestic glory, this is my beloved Son with whom I'm well pleased. We ourselves heard the very voice born from heaven, for we were with him on the holy mountain. And in fact, in particular in the Gospel of Mark, we find that the disciples are emphasized. They're emphasized because they were to be the beneficiaries of seeing the majesty of Jesus Christ, of glimpsing the glory of Christ revealed, the dazzling image of Jesus as he was transfigured before them, the presence of Ezekiel, uh, excuse me, Elijah and Moses uh, in, in this coming of the cloud and this voice of God. Uh, they were to benefit from it, and so are we. We're to understand that the king has come, that Christ has come, and he is going to transform this world. And we're to be encouraged by that. And so let me ask you, as you look at the Christ, the Son of God, the King of Kings, are, are you not encouraged? You know, are you upset by evil in this world? 
Are you upset by your own sin? Are you weary that people take advantage of people? Are you tired of so many lies? Are you tired of the war in this world, the conflict on an international level, on a national level, even in your own relationships? Are you weary from physical challenges, from illnesses? Are you tired of mourning death and loss of people you love and care about, even people you don't know? Tired of seeing the loss of life? Are you weary from the difficulty of making a living? You know, in many, many ways, there are things that are not right in this world. And Jesus, the Christ, the Son of God, is King. And he will right all wrongs. There will be a day when he'll come and those who believe in him and trust in him will experience transformation personally. Uh, There'll be no more tears uh, at judgment. Uh, Those who know Christ and receive the gift of eternal life will know this world, and those that are judged will endure hell forever. But for those of us who know him and love him and believe in him, uh, we will receive everlasting life in this everlasting existence in a transformed world. Uh, Not because of anything we've done, quite the opposite, only because of who Jesus is and what he's done and the fact that we're united with him in faith. And so take a good look at him. You know, Peter, James, and John, at least Peter, didn't really want to leave, did he? I mean, that's part of what's going on with the tabernacles, with the tents. Hey, this is pretty great. Let's erect three tents up here and let's hang out. Uh, Now, the scholars debate exactly where this mountain was. Uh, The traditional site is Mount Tabor, But where most scholars think this is was Mount Hermon, which is an extreme north uh, above the Sea of Galilee. In fact, today there's a um, a, a ski resort there on Mount Mount Hermon. And so presumably this was quite a nice place to be. You know, when we go out into the heat of the summer, it's nice to think about a, a mountaintop experience where it's a little cooler and everything's nice and we see this dramatic event, you know, this literal mountaintop experience, just kind of stay there and hang out with Jesus and, and enjoy uh, the sight of who he is and his glory and his kingship. And we should do that. We should enjoy it. We should think about what it's going to be like when Jesus returns. You know, think about, you look out in the, uh, uh, the beauty of the sunrise, the beauty of the sunset, uh, the most beautiful aspects of this world Remember, a friend of mine came from another state. He said, you know, other places have mountains and this and that, but Florida, boy, the clouds are just beautiful in the sky in Florida. Think of those beautiful, billowing, shining clouds. Think of the best relationships you've ever had at the best time. You know, when everything is just firing on all cylinders. Think of the closest you've ever been to God in relationship with God. That all pales in significance to the glory of what you are going to experience when Jesus Christ returns. And so we should take time to think about that, to dwell on that. But then we also have to come down from the mountain. And that's what Jesus does. The, all of a sudden the cloud's gone, Elijah's gone, Moses gone. It's just the disciples and Jesus. And they start coming down the mountain. And so then we learn that not only do we have a foretaste of glory, but Jesus gives us a forecast of suffering. 
Mark 9 and 10, 9, 9 and 10. And as they were coming down from the mountain, he charged them to tell no one what they had seen until the Son of Man had risen from the dead. So they kept the matter to themselves, questioning what this rising from the dead might mean. One scholar said of this comment from the disciples, the disciples' real question, what have the death and resurrection to do with the Son of Man? You know, what is this? What's going on? Now, the disciples would have been well aware of the teaching regarding a general resurrection of the dead. There'll be a time when uh, then all people will be resurrected from the dead to face judgment. And so they're really wondering what is going on about this resurrection, this death of the Son of Man and the resurrection of the Son of Man. And so then they asked kind of a follow-up question, verse 11, and they asked, why do the scribes say that Elijah first must come? And their, their question was really something like this. In the Old Testament, you have this prophecy in Malachi 4, 5. Behold, I will send you Elijah the prophet before the great and awesome day of the Lord, before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes. And so this was the common conception, is you would have this forerunner of the Christ, and then immediately the Christ would come, and after that he would set up the culmination of his kingdom immediately. And so they were confused by this, okay, the Christ has come, the Christ is coming after Elijah comes, so why the suffering that you talk about? And so Jesus clarified, he said to them, Elijah does come first to restore all things, and how it is written of the Son of Man that he should suffer many things and be treated with contempt. But I tell you that Elijah has come, and they did to him whatever they pleased, as it is written of him. He's saying, yes, Elijah, one came in the spirit. It's a type of Elijah. That was John the Baptist. And they treated him with contempt. They killed him. And just as the uh, prophecy says of the Messiah, the Christ, that he too uh, will be treated with contempt and he will be killed as well. And so there will be this time between the death of Messiah and his resurrection and the culmination of the kingdom. In any case, Messiah, Christ, is going to suffer. And those who would follow him need to understand that they also need to take up their cross and follow him. They need to understand that that is the, uh, that is the route to glory is through suffering that God has called Jesus to and us to. Philippians 2 8 through 11 speaks of this. And being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Acts 2.23 says this, This Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. God raised him up, loosing the pangs of death because it was not possible for him to be held by it. So the root of glory for Christ was through suffering. And part of the reason why only suffering would be the root to glory is that God had a plan for you to be part of that which would bring him and Christ's glory. That is, Christ coming to save you, to not leave you in your sins, to not leave you in an estranged state with God. 
that Christ came so that you could be reconciled to God as he came and he bore in his body um, the, the wounds that for, were for us. Isaiah 53, 5, but he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his wounds, we are healed. And so we receive glory by being united to Jesus Christ by faith. We receive forgiveness of sins and reconciliation with God. And we also receive all the benefits of being united with Jesus Christ. You know, the disciples at the... At, up to this time, we're thinking, hey, we're in the inner circle. Peter, James, and John were really the inner circle of the 12 apostles. And Jesus is going to be this Christ, and he's going to take over, and we're going to be his uh, right-hand men. And so Jesus is saying to them, if you would follow me, you must understand that following me means that you will suffer with me. 2 Timothy 11 and 12 Chapter 2, verses 11 and 12 says, This saying is trustworthy, for if we have died with him, we will also live with him. If we endure, we will also reign with him. So we have died with Christ, the Bible says, that you're united with him. And when he died, you died. When he was raised, you were raised. When he was ascended, you were ascended. Your destiny is united with the destiny of Jesus Christ. And so we endure And if we endure, we will also reign with him as he returns. And so your glorious king is coming. You know, Romans 8, 18, For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. 2 Corinthians 4, 17, For this light momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. And so understand this, we should not think that suffering for us as Christians is unusual. Peter himself said in the epistle of 1 Peter, Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you as though something strange were happening to you. But rejoice insofar as you share Christ's sufferings, that you may also rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed. If you are insulted for the name of Christ, you are blessed because the spirit of glory and of God rests upon you. And he goes on to say, we're not to suffer for doing evil. I mean, we should suffer for doing evil, but we're to suffer for doing good. We're to suffer for the gospel's sake. How is it that we can share in Christ's sufferings? I mean, Christ completed everything necessary for our eternal life, eternal relationship, forgiveness of sins to be right in God's sight. And yet, the ministry of the gospel of Jesus Christ goes forward. And so as we live for Christ and we want others to know the good news of Jesus Christ, we will endure suffering for the cause of Jesus Christ until he returns and that time is over. So don't think that it is a strange thing to suffer for Christ. And don't see suffering as necessarily a sign of God's judgment, a lack of love, the fact that he's not answering your prayers. You know, so oftentimes we're tempted to do exactly that, right? There's something bad happening in my life. That means that I'm suffering some kind of displeasure from God or uh, that God's just not hearing my prayer requests. We should always take stock any time of our life in terms of whether there's something we need to repent of, but... Oftentimes we suffer 
as our common occurrence, as our common lot in life, and certainly as we live for Jesus Christ. We suffer for the sake of the gospel. And there are many who think, well, Christ is king, and if Christ is king, then my life should be easy. I should go to my king, and King Jesus is going to make everything problem-free. Well, he doesn't promise you a problem-free life, does he? He promises that you will suffer, that as you travel the road, as you follow Jesus, that along that road there will be suffering. He will be with you all the way. The Spirit will be with you all the way. God the Father will be with you all the way. But as you travel with Jesus, as you follow Jesus, there will be twists and turns. There will be challenges. Another thing I think particularly in our culture is you need to understand that there are times when Jesus is going to call you to task. Uh, We don't like that. Um, I think of Peter, right? Peter says uh, he rebukes Jesus and Jesus says to Peter, just search your heart, Peter. Search your heart deep inside and you will see what the truth is. No, he says, get behind me, Satan. And so there are times when you will have this certain conception of reality or of Christ or what it means to live for Christ, and Christ will rebuke you through his word as you listen to his word. And uh, again, our culture does not like that. But we understand that Jesus is with us all the way. And so we are to focus on the glory of Christ, the gift of the transfiguration, For the apostles, for you and for me, thinking about what it's going to be like in the consummation of the kingdom and follow Jesus. Follow Jesus until that time comes. Here's how John Stott put it in terms of our suffering state and the state of the early Christians. Nevertheless, what was shameful, even odious to the critics of Christ was in the eyes of his followers most glorious. They had learnt that the servant was not greater than the master, and that for them, as for him, suffering was the means to glory. More than that, suffering was glory. And whenever they were insulted because of the name of Christ, the spirit of glory rested upon them. Here's what the great reformer Martin Luther said. If we consider the greatness and the glory of the life we shall have when we have risen from the dead, it would not be difficult at all for us to bear the concerns of this world. If I believe the word, I shall on the last day, after the sentence has been pronounced, not only gladly have suffered ordinary temptations, insults, and imprisonment, but I shall also say, oh, that I did not throw myself under the feet of all the godless for the sake of the great glory which I now see revealed and which has come to me through the merit of Christ. And then finally, this is an account uh, told by D.L. Moody, is recorded in our Daily Bread, about a woman who was uh, confined to her room because of illness. She was unable to get out. She was uh, uh, impoverished. Uh, and yet she had a bright, cheerful, optimistic uh, outlook on life. And the account is of uh, this woman being visited by a friend in her apartment attic. Her apartment was on the fifth floor of this uh, this particular apartment that was uh, really run down and, and filthy. And so uh, this woman came and brought her wealthy friend. <clears throat> As they entered 
the apartment complex, uh, her wealthy friend said, what a dark and filthy friend, uh, place this is. And her friend said, well, it's better higher up. And so they got on the second floor, and she said, it's even worse on the second floor. She said, it's better higher up. And so they got to the very top floor where they got into the apartment of this woman who was confined to her bed. And the, the room itself was clean, and, but it was very sparse, sparsely decorated. And uh, so this, this wealthy woman uh, really couldn't help it. And uh, she said, it must be very difficult for you to be here like this. Uh, without a moment's hesitation, the shut-in responded, it's better higher up. So she wasn't looking at temporal things. She had her eyes fixed through faith on that which is eternal. And as a result, she found satisfaction and contentment in what she was enduring. Now, let me say this. I'm not about to tell you that if you keep your eyes fixed on Jesus and you think about the future that you're going to endure, that suffering will not be suffering. Suffering is going to be difficult. It's not that it's going to go away. But, as Colossians 3.2 says, set your minds on things above, not on the things that are on the earth. We set our mind on things above where Christ is. We have a glimpse, we have a vision of the glory of Jesus Christ, the good news. He is good news for all that he has accomplished for us as a gift, nothing we've earned, nothing we've deserved. And so we hold fast in faith. We have those glimpses of glory, and it enables us to live and endure the suffering that we're called to for the gospel, for the good news of Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Father, we are so thankful, first of all, for Jesus Christ, for what he is, for who he is, for what he's done, for his divine sonship from all eternity, for his incarnation, for taking on flesh, for becoming a man that he could live for us and die for us in our place. We thank you, Father, for his death and resurrection for us. We thank you for his ascension for us and even for his return and all that it means for us. We come to you humbly confessing our sins, acknowledging that we deserve your judgment. We deserve your wrath. We don't deserve your mercy. But we come receiving that free gift of eternal life through faith in Jesus. But we also thank you, Father, for the revelation that you've given to us in your word, that your word shows us the glory of Jesus Christ and the glory of what he's done and what he will do. And I pray, Father, that you would help us to set our mind's eye on Jesus Christ, and that as we do, that you would give us the encouragement to live for him in faith. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, we know that our worth